Welcome to the Sports and Torts Podcast, your go-to podcast for entertaining conversations on sports, law, and business. This podcast is powered by the J. Stein Law Firm, a personal injury law firm in Atlanta, Georgia. And now, here is your host, Joshua Stein. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the latest episode of Sports and Torts. Hope you all enjoyed Alvaro last week as much as I did and maybe picked up a few tips and tricks along the way to uh, better your professional lives. I know that I certainly learned a thing or two, but today we are back to another lawyer and we've got ourselves a good one. My man, James Robeson, is in the house. He's so kind to join us. He's a partner in the Atlanta law firm of Glass Robeson with his friend Robert. Uh, Their firm has done so well over the years, held in such high regards. Uh, that they likely employ all these recommendations that we heard uh, from Alvaro last week. That's my best guess, or maybe they just know it on their own. But either way, further ado, James, we've been talking about doing this for a while. You're here. I'm excited. How are we doing? I'm doing great. Appreciate you inviting me. I think we were long overdue. We've been talking about doing this for over a year, so I appreciate your persistence um, and look forward to spending a little time with you today. I'm nothing nothing not persistent. That's true. That's true. Well, I appreciate the invitation and I appreciate the persistence. Uh, New Year treating you off well? I mean, we're we're February now, but... It's flying by. It's hard to believe uh, that we made it through the holidays. It seems like 2024 is off uh, with quite a bang. I've been very busy just, you know, trying to recover from December. Man, I'm feeling busy too. I I took more depositions in January than I did in any month last year. Is that right? By far. I mean, I think that it was a combination of like I've got some cases that are just cooking at the, at the moment. Um, but I felt like late December or just excuse me, late November and December, everything was kind of pushed off. Yeah, oh, we'll do it in January. We'll do it in January. Well, those days they then <laughs> they then they're on the calendar. You're like, right. well, I guess we're doing this now. Yeah, do you feel the same way. I, you know, it's funny. Um, my month has been catching up from December. Um, we had a big trial that um, uh, we may talk about in a little bit, but um, just kind of catching up from December and really the things I didn't get to in December. So it's been a lot of I filed a, uh, several cases. So I think my February and my March are going to be like your January. Interesting part of our job is we are in somewhat control of our calendar. The extent that you know you file your case in January, you know that come March is going to be heating up. Right. Um, which a lot of defense firms they just get their case when they get them. They can't really space things out. That's absolutely true. And I mean, I think the only thing that sometimes gets in our way is the statute of limitations. So I'm unfortunately having to file a few that. You know, you think, oh, well, 20, when you sign up the case, you think 2024 is so far away. And then if it's a case that uh, has a statute that runs in early 2024, you know, we've got several months. But by the time you get uh, it filed and get it served, you know, you want to make sure you have all the right parties in there. So you want to leave yourself a little space. So. The last thing you want to do is start buttoning up against that statute of limitations. Exactly. There's no worse feeling. And you're checking on service every minute. And, ugh. I it's so stressful. We can avoid that is better. All right. Before we get into it, uh, people that have been listening have heard about um, our upcoming charity event we have with Parag Shaw, who you know, um, with a great charity, Side by Side Clubs, which you also know. So um, I want to uh, give, give Parag a chance to talk about it because he does such a better job than me of explaining what he's got going on. Hi, I'm Parag Shaw, the CEO of Miles Mediation and Arbitration, and I'm excited to team up with the Sports and Torts podcast to support and raise money for Side by Side an amazing organization helping adults with brain injuries. Join us for a special podcast interview on March 5th at 1 p.m. at the Brain Injury Clubhouse in Stone Mountain or catch the live stream on social media. If we hit our goal of $10,000, I'll shave my head live on the podcast. Sound crazy? Yeah, you're right, it is. But here's the twist. You can choose to donate to save my hair instead. So who will it be? The Snip Squad or the Lock Lovers? Tune in, donate, and make a difference. Together, we stand side by side to change lives. See you there. All right, as you hear, Parag says we raised $10,000 for Side by Side Clubhouse, the beautiful hair of his going away. Well, that is quite a main to be, uh, to, to be losing. So, uh, we definitely want to see what it looks like underneath, underneath that, uh, that pile of hair. Good looking guy. He's still going to look good, but we got to get, <laughs> we, Hey, reach into your pockets, get that checkbook out. Let's get some money. Let's get that head shaved. Right. Absolutely. Side by side, such a wonderful organization. You know, Robert, uh, served on the board, uh, many years ago, uh, for it. And they just do such wonderful work for people with brain injuries and, 
and it's just it's excellent uh, excellent organization to be part of people in our space the work we do we represent so many folks with brain injuries car yeah. wrecks truck wrecks whatever so like it, it impacts all of our practices and these folks are doing great things so i'm i'm excited to be part of it i'm excited to raise some money for them and i'm excited to watch Prague get that head shaved me too me too that makes two of us it's going to be exciting all right james well people that don't know you Tell me who you are, introduction, sure. background, those kind of things. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'm a Georgia native. Uh, I was born at Piedmont Hospital uh, back in the early 80s. Um, grew up uh, west of Atlanta in uh, West Georgia out in Douglas County. Uh, graduated high school there. And uh, as much as I wanted to get out of Georgia and get out of the South uh, for college, uh, ended up um, staying and went to the University of Georgia. Go dogs! Go dogs! Uh, which was truly a blessing. Um, and uh, met my wife there my senior year of college. Um, and uh, then again, I was ready to get out of Georgia and go to law school somewhere other than the state of Georgia. And uh, applied all over the country, except um, ended up at Mercer, uh, which was yet again a blessing in disguise. Uh, that's where Robert and I met the first week of law school. Uh, we were in the same section together, and uh, we kind of were playing the name game, and it turned out that his um, now wife's um, aunt was my eighth grade math teacher. No way. Yeah. So stars are all aligned. They did. It's, it's just it's funny how, how things like that work out. So Robert and I hit it off. We were friends. We were in the same study group uh, first year and uh, remained friends throughout. We were in each other's weddings. Um, after graduating from law school, came back to Atlanta, uh, started practicing, and um, you know the rest, as they say, is history. So I love I love the idea of being friends with somebody from back in law school day one, or at least year one, mm-hmm. uh, and here y'all are with your own firm. Like that, that that storybook stuff, man. Yeah, it really is. It's you know we didn't end up at the same firms after um, after law school. Uh, Robert went into commercial litigation with a, a, a firm in Midtown. Um, I did insurance defense with a large insurance defense firm in Midtown, um, but. You know, we both kind of got the bug. We knew some people who were doing plaintiff's work um, after law school, and he had kind of talked about it, and I'd had some opportunities to help um, some family members through some um, personal injuries type stuff, um, just kind of walking them through it, and I realized how much I enjoyed that aspect of it. And so Robert was the first to leave his position um, with a firm, with his firm, his commercial litigation firm, and uh, I wasn't too far uh, after him, and I went and worked um, kind of, as they say, switching sides, right? Joining joining the other side and uh, had a great opportunity to go work for uh, a prominent plaintiff's firm in Atlanta and uh, worked there for a couple years and then switched to another one. I just wasn't ready to go out on my own at that point. Yeah, all right, so a lot, lot for me to go back through on that. Sure. Um, first, people probably get sick of me asking this question, <laughs> but a lot of folks did, did what you did and what I did, which is start off working for bigger firms, insurance defense firms, yeah. being on the other side, kind of learning the tricks of the trade, learning how to go about doing the business, learning how to do the cases, and then making a switch. Um, and everybody to a person says how valuable you know that experience is. So, I mean, it, it writes itself, but do you, do you agree with that, that you're seeing every day in your practice, like, thank God I had that oh, experience? no doubt. I mean, for a variety of reasons. I mean, obviously the... Um the tangible, uh, you know, the learning aspect of learning how to practice law um, and doing it, getting a paycheck and learning how to practice law and work in an office um, on, you know, on somebody else's dime, so to speak. Um, But also too, just the relationships that you build and starting to build that network. Um, You know, I've had a number of cases with the firm that I started out with over the years as a plaintiff's lawyer now. um, And so I've run up against the same lawyers that I've known for you know, almost 20 years, I mean, 16, 17 years. Um, so I think it's invaluable to have an opportunity to, you know, one, learn, um, and also to, um, um, you know, to to just figure out how to have a full-time job, you yeah. know? Do you think that what you learned there helped shape the type of firm that you decided to establish? I do. I think that, I, I think that you know, like you, we want to do things the right way. Right. I mean, your firm and, and my firm and, and, you know, the, the people that you and I associate with, we try to we aspire to do things the right way, um, not cut corners, be ethical. Um, you know, our word is our bond. People can can take us at face value and, and take our word. You know what we say, what we, we mean what we say. And that is absolutely a lesson I learned at, at the um, at Swift Curry, which is where I started and the, the lawyers that I had an opportunity to work for there. 
Uh, and, you know, I mean, again, those are lessons that you know and they're part of your kind of makeup, but it, to be reinforced as a young lawyer. Don't you feel lucky to end up working and being mentored by good lawyers? Because that's not a given. There's no. so many shitty ones out there that right. you just as easily could have been assigned to that one. I feel so lucky and so fortunate yeah. and so blessed who I came and learned under. Um, because, yeah, you kind of learn what to do from them, right? You and do. you learn what not to do by seeing how other people go about it. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's just simple things, right? I mean, I had a, I had a mentor who, you know, he said, look, my rule is if, if a client reaches out uh, to me, I've got a 24-hour rule and I'm going to get back in touch with that client within 24 hours. And, and, you know, it's like little things like that they don't teach you in law school. Right. Yeah. But it's how it's just how practically the practice of law works that you never learn in That's a class. Right. That's right. Now, the plaintiff's firms you work for, you work for Pete Law's firm, right? That's right. Um, I don't think I've had anybody on here that has worked with him. I mean, that's, yeah, an unbelievable experience, I'm sure. Yeah, it is. Um, you know, it's funny. The alumni, I saw Pete um, at, uh, at a Christmas party um, after our trial in mid-December. And, um, you know, it's funny, the day we got our verdict, um, another alum, Matt Stoddard of Pete's firm, had gotten a verdict uh, in the same courthouse, Cobb County, as, as us. And uh, it's a growing, you know, it's people go there and they cut their teeth. And, you know, I always said I was a second year lawyer, but I was practicing at like a fifth, sixth year level um, based on the lessons I learned from Pete and from Mike and the mentorship that they provided. So, again, it's just the things that happen in, in my life, I, I just look back on and I realize just... You know, I've been directed in a way um, that I'm, I'm just so grateful for. Yeah, that's neat. It's almost like the NFL coaching trees. Yeah. Right? Like you talk about the the Belichick tree or the Parcells right. tree or the Saban tree. And Absolutely. Like you, you see all the assistants that came underneath that person and then where they excellent. ended up. I mean, it's, it's kind of similar, right? No, it, it really is. I mean, you see, you know, the, the, the Tommy Malone tree or the Pete tree or, you know, the Harris Penn and Lowry tree or whomever. And, you know, and then I also, um, and I can elaborate on, you know, after I left Pete and going to work for Cash Krugel and Fredericks and the impact that those guys had on me. But you're absolutely right. It's like there's so many of us younger lawyers who are in their, you know, 40s or late 30s or early 50s who had these opportunities to work for these, you know, firms that at the time, you know, these were the guys that were our age. And, and now we're, you know, kind of coming into the next generation. It's really awesome. It, it is neat. So what are some, some practical things that you think that you learn from those guys or from those firms that you use, like maybe a trial, like a, an approach or a way yeah. you handle a case? Literally, like what are some things? Yeah, I mean, I think, um, I mean, there's just so many, right? So, I mean, I can think back on like Pete and just, you know, Pete and Mike and their work ethic. And, you know, so many people, I think, prepare cases for settlement. And that's, and you know this, um, because it's the way you, that you do things, right? It's we work our cases up to try them, and if they resolve before trial, great. But we're prepared to do that, and that's I think something that I learned from Pete and Mike is, you know, you you prepare your case for trial. You know, another thing I learned from Mike, and and I think this has translates in such a variety of different ways within the practice is, you know, think about what motivates people. You know, so if you're meeting with a witness, like how can you get these people to help you, right? And it's you know, how do I tell the story about what I'm trying to do or why I need their time? And how do I get them to be invested in giving me some of their time? Time is such a valuable commodity that we have too few, you know, is too precious and we don't have enough of. So the fact that, you know, I learned that from Mike, it's how do I motivate this judge to rule in my favor, or this jury to return a verdict, or to get this witness to talk to me, or get this police officer or this doctor to help me? Um, those are, you know, just some things I learned from them. So I left uh, a message yesterday and a message today for key witnesses in cases, and I'm waiting with bated breath for them to call me back. What's what's the proper way I can motivate these folks? You know, I I, I wish I knew uh, the secret sauce, but I think I think you know, one, you're an authentic person. So I mean, when you can just have a conversation with these folks and say, look, I need your help, and being honest about that, right? I need your help. People want to help people and they want to feel it's so often in our lives that we don't feel that we're important or that we're not, you know, highly regarded or, or you know, that we're just, you know, not being heard. And so somebody who has an opportunity to help, I think if you can convey to them, this is an opportunity to help this person and here's why this is important. Here's why you factor in. You know, I mean, I, I do think that people, that motivates people to want to participate. Yeah, feel good about themselves. Yeah. And tell the truth, right? At the end of the sure. day, aren't we all kind of searching for truth? Absolutely. So, 
yeah, I'll, I'll, I'm going to employ that stuff. I like that. And hopefully these folks, maybe they'll leave me a message while we're sitting here today. Yeah, I don't well, know. I'm not sure. Not. All right. <laughs> so y'all, you opened your firm. I mean, is it what, eight, 10 years? I mean, time goes by so fast. but It has. So after I left Pete's firm, I had uh, one more stop before opening my firm with uh, the guys over at Cash Kruger and Fredericks and Sandy Springs. I uh, had a great opportunity to work with those guys. Um, I love Andy Cash, by the way. Wonderful. If there's a nicer guy, I don't know if I've met him. <laughs> it's funny. I was texting with Andy yesterday about um, just some legislation that was coming through, and he and I, you know, we still maintain contact. Alan Fredericks and I saw each other last week, and you know, gave each other a big hug. Dave Krugler and I were texted last week, so uh, it was different, you know, working there. Um, a lot, a little bit more autonomy, um, and uh, you know, just kind of learning at that point. I was four years in. Uh, so running with things a little bit more mm-hmm. um, and just a, a little bit different variety. Um, I tried uh, a couple cases with Alwyn and learned how to you know try cases with somebody else mm-hmm. and working those up and working up some of my own cases. But you know Robert and I were both there at the same time in different capacities. I was an associate. Robert was of counsel, and so. We had always been talking about the and now prospect. Now you are reconnected, and we're reconnected, and uh, and so after two years with those guys, I mean, it it, it hurt, but it was time. Mm-hmm. And so in 2013, July 1st of 2013, uh, we made the leap, and uh, we're coming up on we we had our 10 year anniversary last year, and so uh, July of this year will be our four or 11 years together. Congratulations, man! And they you. always say that the, the <laughs> amount of Firms, businesses, whatever, the last five years is pretty small, right? Yeah. Then you get to 10, that's even smaller. So you guys are in some pretty rarefied air. That's awesome stuff. It's crazy. Um, people love hearing like the decision tree that goes through making that kind of a ultimate move, right? Yeah. Like you, you and Robert knew each other, so there was familiarity there. Y'all are the same firm, same capacity, but at some point you had to make this decision. Like, yeah. you know, you're, you're, son your, your oldest child was just about to be born or not quite yet so That's right. i mean it's, it's all going on right now so no how do, you, how, do you, how do you arrive at that place yeah i mean you're right i mean there was a lot you know you you're, you've got a steady paycheck you have bosses that you like working for you have cases that you like and uh clients that you enjoy um but you know at at that age and without kids um and we just bought a house you know fortunately my wife was working um but it was a really rare opportunity too i mean robert um Number one, there was trust, um, and he's somebody that I trust and, and have always trusted. Um, I knew he was a good lawyer. I knew he worked hard. Um, I knew what I was getting, and uh, and I think he knew the same with me, having spent that time together in law school, and we both knew each other's work ethic um, and just our ethos. Um, and so I think the big factor for me was, you know, if, if not now, then when? That was what that, that's what I always came back to. If not now, when? Five years, 10 years, there's always gonna be an excuse why you can't do it, kid, house, whatever, but if not, now when? Exactly, and so I think you realize that, you know, you don't wanna look back on life. Certain doors close as we get older um, based on the decisions that we make, you know, whether that's the major that we choose, where we go to college, or where we go to law school, or where our first job is, or where we live. And so um, I think that it, it there comes a, um, critical mass, so to speak, of where we are in our career that we have to make that choice, right? And there's, and you know these people, and I do too, those people who we know 20 years into their career, it's impossible for them to do what you and I do for a living um, for you know, a variety of reasons, mostly financial. Um, and so you, know, you made that same decision, right? It's you're giving something that's certain up to bet on yourself and, and, and see if you can do it. Amen. Well, y'all bet and y'all are winning. I love seeing that. So yeah. when, when two people come together to form a firm, I imagine that you're better at some things than Robert. He's better at some things yeah. than you. <laughs> or is that not true? I mean, it, do y'all kind of say, like, okay, this is the stuff that you're kind of take a lead in. This is, I'm a lead. How does that work? Yeah. You? I mean, there's a lot of things. Um, there are certain cases I just, I don't, I don't do, um, you know, he, he'll handle, you know, some of the dog bite cases. Um, that our firm's handled. We don't handle a ton of those, but I mean, I, I've just never handled one of those, and that's something that, he, but he really enjoys handling those. Um, I think even bigger than that, though, is I'm the type of person that um, really can get caught up in the weeds. Like, I like going down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. I like reading the cases, and like really kind of um, figuring out the how one case may be different than the other. I love arguing the jury charges and love arguing the motions in limine. I like getting into the law and um, I don't write as many motions as I used to, but 
I, I enjoy doing that, and that's stuff I learned and lessons I learned from Mike and, and Mike Moran and, and Pete Law. Um, we had a lot of motions practice in that firm um, just because of the, what, the work we were doing and some of the product liability stuff. Um, but Robert is very good at seeing big picture. Um, and so, um, it, like getting ready for this last trial and doing opening statement, you know, my uh, Achilles heel is focusing on too many details. And so when I'm practicing in front of Robert, you know, to, to kind of flesh it out, get it ready, you know, he'll come in and, and he's just like, look, we got to simplify this. And so Robert, I think where we complement each other is I can get into the nitty gritty and, and the weeds and like really do that. And he can do that. It's just he, I think, has a really a good gift for seeing the big picture of things. That's so cool that y'all can work together and bring out, you know, that which y'all are both good at. Yeah. To come up with great results. The <laughs> trial you mentioned, that was this November, December? It was what? December, December, yeah, mid-December. Four million plus dollar verdict, right? So yeah. so I wanna I wanna hear about that case. Um, yeah. I mean I know about it, of course, I wanna talk sure. talk through it. Um, so you and Robert worked together on it, tried the case together, split up the duties, I'm this, you're gonna do that, mm-hmm. joint effort, the whole thing. Yeah, so it was, um, the way things kind of work at our firm is, you know, one of us will get the case initially, right? And so this was a case that um, another uh, uh, firm had handled, um, and then the client came to us. And uh, so the workup itself is one of us, right? So typically it's not two of us working on one case unless it's a, you know, really, really large case, which we do from time to time, but this wasn't one of those. Um, it's a car wreck case. Um, our client was just driving down the road. Uh, another driver was attempting a left turn. Um, he just didn't yield and pulled into our client. Our client um, went to the emergency room from the scene. His wife came and picked him up. Um, and he had neck and back injuries. Um, and it just kind of got worse. It never got better. And he ended up having um, several surgeries um, and was a chronic pain. You know, he was in chronic pain. Um, and so the way we got that case ready for trial. You know, we tried to settle it. Um, uh, the top offer on the case was $400,000. They never budged. Um, we tried, we sent them an offer to settle the case before trial. Didn't, you know, we got a response saying they wanted to negotiate. We asked for an offer, never made one. So, uh, so it was a $400,000 offer and we just knew we were gonna have to try it. Um, and so, uh, because it was my case, I was I was going to be lead counsel, so I was the, what we call the first chair. Um, but Robert absolutely had a huge role in it as well. Um, so what we do is uh, there were some expert witnesses on both sides. I handled those just because I knew the file so well. It was really medical type um, experts. And then we split up the damages witnesses. Um, I handled our client, and then I did the um, did all the medical art medical testimony in the months and weeks leading up to trial. Got it. All right. Now, the fact pattern you just described to me is not overly unique. No, no offense. Not at all. Okay. Um, <laughs> what about that case you think made it go to trial? Like like you, you, you said, we're trying to get this resolved. We're making offers or, or making demands. Here offers yeah. like, I think us as plaintiff's lawyers sometimes get this reputation that like greedy, things like that. But I don't know any case that I've not been involved in that we haven't tried to get it resolved, right? So what what happened on this one? No, it's a it's a great point, and I think you're absolutely right. I mean, every at least the way I practice, and I, I would imagine it's the same for you. We always want to try and resolve a case if we can, so long as it's fair for our client. And this case was no different. Um, our client had in excess of seven hundred thousand dollars of past medical bills. So financially, taking an offer that was less than half of what his medical bills that makes sense can't do it can't do it. Um, and so I, there was a number that we would have taken um, short of a trial, uh, but when the offer is half of you know less than half of the medical bills, and it's never and we're not even interested in talking, you know that case is it's going to go to trial. So from the from the defense's perspective, is it we think these bills are too high? We think that these bills aren't related to. Uh, the wreck. We think this guy's faking. We think he's not be liked by the jury. All the above. The poop, Pretty the, much the poo-poo platter of why they think they shouldn't. <laughs> yeah, it was it was definitely the poo-poo platter approach. Um, I think that um, you know our client had been suffering for so many years, and um, you know the case before we got involved with it, uh, our client had been deposed, and he he was a very simple guy. He had a seventh grade education. Um, um, he had a tough backstory. 
Um, and so I think that the way that it had gone for him and the way he presented at his deposition, no one really thought that his case, uh, that he would do well in front of a jury. And uh, I think there was absolutely the, um, we don't think it's all related. Um, he was 57 at the time of the wreck. Um, and to hear the defense tell it, the equivalent, he was the equivalent of an 87-year-old. Um, but he really wasn't. I mean, he was a physically active guy. Uh, he had a job. He worked. Um, and so I think that was the idea, was that just the jury wasn't going to believe that it was all related. Um, I think they thought the bills were high. I mean, he had three surgeries. Um, and so I think that there was just, I'm sure you're familiar with the expression, but I think the case was snake bitten. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think the carrier, the insurance carrier, got to a point where they had made their evaluation of it and they had listened to what the lawyers on the case had told them and they got to a point where they just weren't going to reevaluate it. Was it one of these where, you know, the impact of the wreck could never have caused this sort of a injury? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't, I've certainly tried cases with less property damage, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners have, um, but um, it, it certainly wasn't a bumper tap either. I mean, it was significant enough that, um, uh, you know, that he went from the scene by ambulance. One of the nice things, you know, unfortunately for him, but what was helpful, I thought, was after the wreck, you know, a lot of times in these cases, it may be weeks or months before somebody gets an MRI. Well, in this case, he had an MRI within 16 days of the wreck, and it showed evidence of this injury, and there was a very consistent amount of care and complaint as it related to the neck and the back. That's nice. Yeah, so it made it a little easier, and I think, you know, again, I mean, when you got nothing to lose... Uh, and you got a client who's willing to see the case through. I mean, this was a guy who wanted his day in court. And I said, well, look, I mean, if they can get to a certain number, it's going to make it difficult for you. He said, Mr. Robeson, I want my day in court. I was going to ask about the client's perspective and the client's um, go-ahead. Because when I was on the defense side, I always thought that the case was going to trial because, again, I use the word greedy, that the, the plaintiffs themselves were greedy. They want, they want more money. I've actually found the opposite that most of my clients are like, look, get us a fair number, reasonable. we don't want to deal with court. We don't want to sit there for a week. We don't want to do that. Um, now there's some that do, but the lion's share don't. Your your client was one that was like, no, let's go. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that it was just, he knew how badly his life had changed uh, through no fault of his own. So I think there was certainly uh, emotion that was driving part of the decision making. But, you know, as a good lawyer, and, and I know you're the same way as, as I am, I suspect, is we have to be the voice of reason. And so, um, as you know, as much as I was hearing where he's coming from, I, I tried everything I could to say, look, if they come in with a real offer, we, it's something we need to talk about. But they never did. So it made it very easy. Made, it, made your decision easy and his decision easy. Okay. Yeah. So you mentioned all the different parts of the trial, how you sure. broke it up. What What is typically your favorite part of the trial? Whether what, what it, Oh, I mean, I think any lawyer who tries cases would say closing arguments their favorite part. I mean, you know, it's the culmination of everything that you've worked toward. I mean, that's what we're thinking about when we're, um, you know, when we take the case and we're doing our depositions, uh, trying to get those sound bites from the witnesses or from the defense experts. So I think... I think closing argument is always such a fun piece um, of it because it's our t- chance to talk directly to the jury and tell stories and you know and to just crap all over the other side's evidence and why they shouldn't be believed or the tricks that they did. Um, so I, I mean, I think closing argument's always fun. But I think one other thing that I really enjoyed with this one, um, there was a defense expert uh, who you know I, I wouldn't even call him an expert. I just call him the, the defense's paid witness. And uh, he was somebody that the other side had paid $50,000 uh, to come and testify in this case. He came live. And, you know, we've both um, seen these defense guys, uh, these defense, these doctors who just review records and they never see the patient. They never, um, you know, they never speak with them. They never do their own physical examination. They just review records and then deign that it wasn't uh, caused by the wreck. Um, but the fact that this guy got paid $50,000, I've never seen anything like that. I'm guessing that you use that in your closing argument to your advantage when you asked for your verdict. Am I, I, am I wrong? Am I, I right? You're absolutely right. So, <laughs> All right, well, um, what's the strategy? What'd you do? Yeah, so I think, you know, so uh, cross-examining him, um, I guess the day before we did closing was, was really good. And he was an excellent witness for the, for the defense, but he had conceded a lot of things um, that were important things that a lot of doctors wouldn't have conceded. So... 
Um, so I think that, you know, to toot my own horn a little bit, I think that we illustrated for the jury just what this guy, why this guy was there. Um, but what I said was, I said, listen, you know, I, he charged, this doctor charges $1,250 an hour. That's his lowest rate just for looking at people's medical records. Um, and that's for an hour of his time. And so um, you can extrapolate that and multiply that by 24, and it comes out to around 30-something thousand dollars a day. And what I he, said they're willing to pay $30,000 a day to defend this case. I said, and this man's got chronic pain that he's lived with for the last 2,000 plus days, and then he faces for another 6,000, you know, or whatever the number, I think it was 16,000 more days. And I said, and that's a huge number. I'm not even going to say what it is because it's a number that I'm not going to ask you for. But you got somebody back there writing it down with their yeah. calculator on their yeah. iPhones, and they can pipe it in there, and it's a massive number. It's but a, but you, you've, you've brought to life something they can equate to and what, what a day is worth to them. And they're not the ones that are hurt. They're not the ones that didn't ask to go through this. Sure. They've been through surgeries. I think it's great. No, yeah, thank you. And and so what, you know, I said, look, that's what they're willing. And I'm not asking you to pay them, you know, $1,200 an hour for the rest of his life. I said, so pay him for one hour for the rest of his life, for everything he's been through for the last, you know, five years. And then for the next almost 16 years of life that he has left, compensate him for that one hour. And did you... Give a specific number to the jury. I gave them a range. A range. Um, yeah, and so the way, and you know, just kind of as a practice pointer. So we had three aspects of our damages, right? We had past medical bills. Um, he had future medical expenses that were projected. We had medical testimony. We had a life care planner, um, as well as an economist. And so, um, so we had the past medical bills, future medical bills, and then pain and suffering. And so the practice pointer I would say is, you know, it's so often as we're doing the pretrial order, there's a section in there to submit your verdict form or the judge instructs you to do that, you know, on the morning of trial. And we kind of think of it as an afterthought, we'll just, you know, submit it. Um, but I've gotten, I'm at the point where, you know, I'm always gonna ask for a special verdict form, um, you know, and maybe everybody does that already, but I don't think so. Um, but in this case, we uh, we did have and asked for a special verdict form, and the and the judge gave it. Um, and I think appellate counsel for the defense had come in um, right before trial, and I think they would have argued against it had this person not come in. Uh, but what was good about it is when the jury breaks out those uh, categories of damages, even if you lose on one of your issues. Um, so one of the things that's being appealed in our case is the past medical bills and whether there was enough testimony to get that in. Um, you know, but if, if that issue uh, doesn't resolve in our favor, and I think it will, um, but even if it doesn't, that's one element of the damages we lose, but the rest of the verdict stands, stands. up. Yeah. yeah. So they appealed it it's, yeah, as, they, as it goes, right? Yeah, we knew that was forthcoming. So Someone uh, asked me the other day, like, do all these verdicts get appealed? And the answer <laughs> is like, yeah, I mean they do, they um, do. and and you know the trial at some degree is just another part of the negotiation process of the case, it which is. I think the the normal person has a hard time wrapping their mind around. Like you try the case, jury speaks, judge signs you. Like shouldn't that be it? Right. Unfortunately, I, it's just not. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I had an opportunity to speak with some of the jury members after our, our verdict, including the foreman, and they were like, you know, okay, so now this is it. And I said, no, I mean, there's going to be a you know motion for new trial and. You know, and that's typical, right? It's the motion for new trial because that stays the time for filing an appeal. Uh, and then if that gets denied, then they file the notice of appeal. It goes to the Court of Appeals. You're looking at roughly a year before that gets resolved. Then there's the Supreme Court. In our case, um, they raised a constitutional challenge. So um, strategically, it was an interesting choice. They, they, they're not filing a motion for new trial or filing it in the Court of Appeals. So it's kind of a silver bullet for them. It's Either they win in the either Supreme, it is or it isn't. Either they win in the Supreme Court or they don't. And if they don't win on their issue, it's over. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I feel okay about it, um, appellate-wise. And here's the other thing: is you know, interest is running on it. That was my next question. We always <laughs> ask. Well, just so does interest keep running and running and running and running? How does that work? Yeah. So the final judgment in the case was just over four million dollars. Um, and so Georgia law says that on a judgment, um, the interest rate, the put what we call post-judgment interest, is uh, the prime rate plus three percent, which the prime rate I think is about eight and a half percent, 
uh, plus three, it's eleven and a half percent. I'm not aware of any other investments. That's pretty good investment that, yeah. that are legal. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's giving that kind of return. That give you that kind of return. Yeah, so I guess the the, the, the point of it, the, the take home is that the defense can't appeal these things for free. That's like, right. It comes at a cost. It does. Yeah. Um, and the one that I always my friends ask about the the Jim Butler Ford verdict with one point seven billion dollars or something, uh-huh. and the interest on that every day. Is like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh yeah, I mean, ours is nowhere near that. But I mean, twelve hundred dollars a day of interest on our verdict right now yeah. is, is what it's accumulating. So, you know, again, I mean, part of it is to your point a minute ago about the negotiations on the back end. It's it's still a business decision, right? And it's and it's do we try and resolve the case? And we certainly have risk. I mean, I I, I feel okay about the case I tried and. You know, uh, and the judge's rulings. Um, I feel okay about all that, thing, all those things. Uh, but there's certainly risk, and so you know, if there was an opportunity to resolve the case, you know, for a fair number that you know accounts for that risk, would we do it? Of course. I mean, you'd be silly not to do that. Yeah. But similar to the way that the case was worked up before uh, before trial, there really doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in, in that. I mean, I've certainly made that effort, and. Um, you know, haven't heard anything more on it. So let your twelve hundred dollars <laughs> let it run every day, and, That's then, right. and then let that, their civil bullet get shut down, and then let's see what happens. All right, last question on the trial. Sure. Um, what is your routine like? Diet, exercise, family, like life goes on as you're as you're yeah. working morning till night on these cases. Like, what is your general habits during trial? So um, I'd say you know I really started getting ready for the the trial was December started December 11th. Um, I really started getting ready for it around uh, Halloween um, with just prepping my client. He he needed a lot of prep. Um, so you know up until say um, early December, it was kind of life as usual. I mean, in terms of focus, I was focusing the majority of my time on the case. Um, but, you know, I'm a big believer in exercise. I try, I haven't been running as much as I like to, uh, but going to the gym, running, uh, you know, just a few days a week, just trying to get the juices flowing and think about the work. Um, Diet-wise, you know, pretty, pretty standard. Um, the week before trial, um, maybe even the week before that, I wasn't eating much. I was usually eating about one meal a day. Um, and that's just nerves and just, I don't have time, right? And I can't afford to have a, you know, insulin crash or spike or whatever it is, uh, or glucose, you know, deficiency and, and be tired. Um, so the week before trial, I was down to about one meal a day at night, uh, get home about nine o'clock, you know, I was working probably 12 hours, uh, uh, still trying to run, um, you know, three, four miles uh, every other day. I wasn't really going to the gym. And then during trial, it's just all your focus is on trial. So, I mean, maybe there are some people who are getting up super early, but you know, if you're starting trial and, and expected to be there to start at nine, um, I'm gonna get there at 8.30 and it just doesn't leave a lot of time. Um, so it was, you know, get up early, you know, six o'clock, get up, get ready, get to the courthouse and, and start working. And it was, they were long days. And I paid for it the week after because I got sick. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard not to, right? I mean, after you put yourself through that, for, yeah. And then it's you know it's 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 just as you mentioned. All right, you you I'm going to take your segue about the running um, because I know that you're big into that mm-hmm. marathons, all that kind of stuff. Now you're into mountain climbing, all this cool right. stuff. So I want to focus some of that, some of the out of out of office, out of trial things that, that get you going. Absolutely. Um, I used to see you at Lifetime. You still go there. I don't anymore. <laughs> But uh, yeah, man, always staying in shape, always doing good stuff. I, you know, I would say it was about seven and a half, eight years ago uh, when my son was pretty young. Um, and I just remember thinking, you know, and I remember my wife said, you know, we've got to set a good example for our kids, right? And so, you know, obviously, you know, and you, you get older, right? I mean, once you get past 30, uh, the weight doesn't come off as easily as it did. <laughs> um, and so I just remember thinking, man, I, I just don't like, you know, the way I'm looking. Um, and I want to set a good example. So at that point, I started getting into running a little bit, um, lifting weights, um, which I found to be a lot more effective in terms of getting those pounds off. Um, and uh, you know, started running some races, some five Ks, uh, just with the Atlanta Track Club. Really enjoyed it. I surprised myself in terms of some speed. And so I just kind of gradually was working on that. I'd run the um, Peachtree Road Race, I think, for the first time, maybe. Uh, the year I was studying for the bar exam. So the bar exam was in July of 2007 for me. 
Um, and I ran it, and then literally 10 years later, in 2017, I ran it for the second time. And uh, I think I ran it faster than I had to run it there you go. Uh, when I was studying for the bar. So, you know, I got into running um, just races and, and did a lot of those. And then I set the goal. I said, well, I'm going to do a half marathon and enjoyed that. And I, I was in law school. I remember friends of mine training for a marathon. And I told my wife, I said, one day I'm going to do that. And she laughed. And lo and behold, um, I registered for the lottery for the New York Marathon in 20, uh, 2019. And I told my wife, I said, look, I'm going to register for it. And if, uh, if I get the lottery, it's meant to be. And, you know, entered for the first time and I got it. And so it's something to strive for. Um, and it's really tough to run that marathon because every marathon that you run after that, it's kind of a letdown by comparison. Yeah, when you say tough to run that marathon, I'll change it. <laughs> tough to run a marathon. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've done several half marathons and that is, that's all I can do. I'm not, They're hard. Last several years I've kind of gotten out of it. But uh -huh. uh, I started training one time for a marathon. I didn't make it. I well, couldn't do it. It's, uh, it. it's certainly not, I mean, it's a individual sport in the sense of you're the only one out there running, um, but it is a, it's a commitment particularly if you're married with kids, like, like we both are, um, it, you're definitely leaning on your spouse to kind of pick up the slack. I mean, you're out for three hours on a run. Um, you know, it's, it's asking a lot on a weekend. My wife was working, I think the first time I had trained for it. Yeah. So it was before we had our, our fourth, um, you know, so she was working and like weekends were precious to her too. And I'd have to get up at, you know, Sunday morning and I'd be gone and then, you know, hauling, hauling it to get back so we can make it to church. And then by the way, you're wiped out when you get you home. Are. I mean, I remember looking at that schedule. Once I got to like the 12, 13 yeah. miles, I'm like, I gotta go run 16 tomorrow, right. and then I gotta go run 18? Right. Like, this ain't happening. No, I know, and they, in these plans, I mean, so the most I'd ever get up to would be like 23 miles. Right. Um, and you're right, I mean, it, I'd get home, we'd go to church, and then I'd get, you know, get home from church, and I was like, I really don't wanna do anything, you know? Yeah. It's like, do you wanna go to the pool? No, not really. And, all right, everybody's got their their marathon story, like mile 24, yeah. 22, 25, what you got? Uh, there's one for everyone. So I've run four marathons, um, and, you know, I, I kind of like to do maybe one more just to get an, you know, an even five. Um, so I would say New York um, it was the first – the first half of that race was fantastic. I mean, there's a million people cheering you on throughout the course of the race, so that was awesome. Uh, but, you know, you get to mile – I remember getting to mile 21 in like Harlem and then coming up, I think it was Fifth Avenue, Fifth or Sixth Avenue, and it's just a steady climb and then getting into the park. And I had never cramped up in any of my training and I get into Central Park. Now throughout the race, you know, there are people like giving out things and there's, you know, plenty of rest stations and, you know, even just randomly people giving, you know, bananas and stuff. But once you get in the park, you're kind of toward the end of the race. You're really in the last mile or two. And uh, there's just not any aid. And I and literally got a cramp about mile 24. And I'd never had that before. And I was like, I don't know how I'm going to finish this. And I look over and there's a kid holding a banana, probably for his mom who's about to run by. And you're just snagging just like, Sorry, kid. It and just ate it. That's mine now. Yeah, it's mine. And uh, managed to, you know, it staved off the cramp uh, and, you know, was able to get through. So, um, that was, that was the first one. Uh, I, I've run the Atlanta Marathon and then I did Chicago. Uh, was the last one I did, um, and I just bonked. I mean, I, would, I got to mile 14, and it was just it was warmer than I expected. I was probably under trained for it a little bit, and uh, went out a little too with a little too much gas on the front end. I finished it, um, and I finished it, you know, in a respectful. But I had to stop around mile 14 and walk, and I kind of alternated and. You know, walking, running, walking, running. Hey, man, no shame in that. No. Getting get the finish line is, is what it's all about. And yeah. you have now, I don't know if you did this before, but trading in the running gear for some mountain climbing. Yeah, gear. so, Super you know, in that. Turn, turn 40, um, April I'll be 42. So in when I turn 40, you know, I've always enjoyed um, climbing. Uh, not that I did it in college or anything, but in law school I kind of got into it a little bit, bouldering and stuff. I had a friend. Uh, in law school that we kind of picked it up together and just learned and you know bouldering you're not climbing with ropes right it's lower height uh, but you know you fall it can still hurt um, and so I got into it and then you know didn't really do it uh, much uh, we went on a trip before our youngest uh, Camille was born to Grand Teton my wife and I we were gonna go to the beach a hurricane came and hit Bermuda the Friday before we left on our trip so we scrambled to find an alternative. It was for our, I think it was for our 10-year anniversary, and so uh, we went out to Grand Teton. 
Uh, we hiked up to Inspiration Point. My wife was like seven months pregnant. Good. And so she was a good sport. Good sport. Yeah. And uh, as we're coming back, walking to the Jenny Lake um, uh, Ferry, I see all these people with ropes, you know, walking toward where we had just come from. And I said, man, that looks pretty cool. I wonder if anybody's ever climbed Grand Teton. And so I Googled it, and lo and behold, sure enough. plenty have. And uh, it's a relatively good first climb for a beginning mountaineer. So, you know, I was talking about it with my wife. I said, that's what I really like to do when I turn 40. And uh, so for my 40th birthday present, that was her gift to me. So do you have some a friend, a mate that goes with you? No, no. I just, uh, so, you know, I found these guides um, out there. There's, you know, it's in the National Park, uh, Jackson, uh, excuse me, uh, Grand Teton National Park. And so uh, out in Jackson, Wyoming, or near there. Uh, so I looked it up, and there's uh, guides, uh, Exxon Mountain Guides are one of the two approved vendors in the park. Um, and they've been around for, you know, 50, 60 years. And so I uh, reached out to them and, you know, got a training plan. It's not a lot uh, different from training for a marathon. It's a little different in the sense of, um, you know, you, I bought a weight vest. And I'd go get on the stair climber for an hour and get used to climbing and uh, trying to do, you know, marathon and, and any running really is um, to improve speed. You have to improve cardiovascular endurance and your VO2 max and how much, you know, how quickly can you or how little oxygen can you burn to, you know, go faster, right, and get your lungs. So it's, a, it's very similar in that sense. So doing a lot of the same training activity. Um, and uh, so yeah, I decided to do that. And last summer in July of uh, 2023, I did my climb. July 7th, 2023, summited Grand Teton at 13,300. There we go. Yeah, 13,000 plus feet. What's the itinerary like from day to day? Yeah, so um, because I had no mountaineering experience um, and hadn't really ever climbed you know, with ropes. Um, so the, there's grades of, of um, mountain climbing so grade one is like you know like backpacking right just going up on, on a hike uh, all the way up to grade five uh, which is like um, a lot of exposure you know and a fall uh, without a harness and rope would lead to could be a problem. fatality could be a problem. or serious yeah. injury right <laughs> yeah. and so Grand Teton has is a is a class five type climbing um, and then those within class five there are different grades of that um, and so uh, flew out to Jackson, uh, got a few days, you know, we're at sea level here in Atlanta. Um, out there, you're at around 6,000 feet. So just kind of acclimating, doing a little hiking. Um, I stayed in the park at the Climbers Ranch. Um, and then um, uh, it's a Monday through Friday program. Um, so Monday, meet the guides, go out, do some um, basics like learning how to walk up a rock. Um, uh, doing a little bit of bouldering uh, and then learning basics of rope and how to belay um, and it's a class they say so they call it the classic so while you do use some of the um, you know the the different uh, things that go into the rock to hold you onto the rock you're also learning how to use the features of the rock to stop in case of a fall uh, so like tying off onto a rock and creating that friction and so the first day uh, we're climbing this what they call slab, so it's pretty it's pretty slick. There's not a lot of footholds, and uh, thunderstorm comes up. And it's not very helpful. No, and uh, and then it starts raining, and particularly on a slab. And I remember climbing up, and I remember thinking to myself, "What are you doing? You have four kids. At home. You're doing this voluntarily, <laughs> right? man. There's no no one's you're, forcing you to do right, this, and you're paying to and do you're it. You're paying to do it, yeah. Right. So we got to the top, and I just remember thinking, like, what am I doing? And then the next day was even more climbing where you're like traditional climbing, right? It's you're on a face and you got a guide and you're you know roped in. Um, but that went really well. There was no thunderstorm, thankfully, that day. Um, and I just, I thought it was great. I mean, it's scary um, because, you know, if the rope fails or, you know, this thing comes out of the hold, I mean, you're going to yeah. be tumbling. Um, so it's a, it's a matter of trust. What's food and lodging like? Uh, it was, I'm sure it could be a lot nicer. I'm pretty cheap. So I ended up... I really want to have an authentic experience. So, um, so I stayed. There, there's this uh, place. It's called the Climbers, uh, the Alpine Climbers, American Alpine Climbers Club. They have a ranch within the park, um, which is really close to where we would meet every day. Um, but it was pretty Spartan. We were in. Um, uh, it's like staying in a youth hostel. Um, so I had a sleeping bag, and it was a, a you know a, a air air mattress on a on a. Um, 
bunk bed, uh, which was fine. I mean, it was good. It was a good experience. Uh, Food-wise, I would usually just go into town and get something. Uh, but then on the hike itself, or excuse me, the climb, so you know, the first few days are learning the basics of rope safety and the commands and learning how to climb and using your feet and you know learning how to rock climb. Uh, there was a day of, um, because we went early in the season, uh, there was a day of like learning how to walk across snow and you know if you fall and you start sliding down the mountain how to stop yourself with an axe. Um, yeah what is the weather like? In July out there it's pretty, it's, it, it's, the mornings are cool, um, there's still snow uh, on the top of the mountain um, but it's it's warm enough that you know when you're walking from the valley to the what would they call the lower saddle um, it's about six miles you gain uh, about six thousand feet and it's a six hour hike with a 45 pound pack just to get to the lower saddle Oof. Uh, so it's brutal I mean it's it's similar to the marathoning thing and you know and there's a lot that translates into like the law right so um, you know it's climbing the mountain itself that's a two-day it's you get up at three o'clock in the morning after you've hiked to get to the lower saddle. You get up at three o'clock with the idea of trying to be at the summit by say nine thirty or ten, um, and it just takes that long. And then you got to get down. That's a, that's what I always see when I see these pictures. I saw your picture too. Yeah. Everybody's smiling. You're right. on top of the summit. And I'm like, that dude's got to get back down. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know? and and I think that goes un, unthought of. It sometimes. does. It does. And it's not only just get down to where you started from, it's then to walk all the way back to the car, which took you six hours to do. And so um, the similarity, I think, with, I mean, nutrition's really important, um, you know, fuel, and it's like marathoning, and your stomach feels bad, and you're at altitude. Um, but, you know, what I, one way it translates into the law, it's like, right, I've gotta just get from this point to this point, you know, and I can't think about, like, my kids, or work, or, you know, the emails that I'm responding to, it's like, I've got to focus, and it's the same thing with the trial, right? It's like I've got to get my voir dire done. I've got to get my opening statement done. I've got to figure out how I'm going to do clothes. Do I have my witnesses under subpoena? I've got to work on one thing right now, mm -hmm. you know. And so you have a singular focus, which I mean, I really like. There, you know, a variety of lessons I learned from it that I've applied to, and the sense of accomplishment when yeah. you complete something, right? Mm -hmm. Like the way you felt after that trial, hearing that jury say the verdict is similar. To, I'm sure how you felt top of the mountain yeah absolutely and you know and I think with the trial um, you know trials they should make you nervous right I mean because you got risk you got somebody on the other side you know I could be wrong I mean I'm not the kind of person that you know thinks I can never be wrong um, my wife may disagree that I, about that but I mean I think generally speaking I recognize that there's risk and so but in this case you know there wasn't really any and I felt it was probably the calmest I've ever been in a, in a trial. Um, I mean, I've tried much smaller cases and felt way more nervous about them. Right. You can't replicate when you hear that knock on the door figuratively when the judge says, we got a verdict, like the heart just goes. It does. Like, like, you, there's, no way, there's no way to control that. There's right? no way to control it. But if you know that you put on a good case and you know that you've done everything in your power to win, I mean, some things are just left up to fate, right? Right. And so I think for me, it was like, I mean, I couldn't have worked any harder on the case. You know, I mean, I was there, you know, 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning until 9, 10 o'clock at night. I mean, the morning before closing arguments, I was there until 2 o'clock in the morning. I mean, there's just nothing more. There's no more gas in the tank. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So what's the next adventure? What do you got coming up? Yeah, so uh, I'm excited. You know, I, was, I vowed that I would never climb another mountain if I, you know, survived and safely made it off of Grand Teton. Uh, but you know, it's like marathoning. You kind of say the same thing about that. You finish a race and you say, I'm done doing this. And then, you know, a few weeks go by and, and you want something to look forward to. So got to, uh, around, you know, we're all making new year's resolutions this December. And I said, I got to have something to look forward to. And, uh, I thought about, you know, should I maybe get into ultra marathoning, you know, running more than a marathon. So 50 K 50 mile. 100 mile, and that's still on my list of things to try and do. Oof, my man. <laughs> At some my point, man. you know, my wife made the joke. She said, is there any activity that you could do that wasn't like so isolating that actually involves your family? Do you <laughs> hate being with us? And I love my family, but there's just something about it. So um, I've, I've committed to, to climb uh, Capitol Peak, which is a 14,000 foot mountain in Colorado uh, near Aspen. So, you know, the, that level, the 14ers of Colorado are kind of famous. And Capitol Peaks, uh, you know, some regard it as one of the hardest 
uh, peaks, if not the hardest in Colorado to climb. It's pretty comparable, I think, to Grand Teton. I think it's class four versus class five, but there's a part of it called the knife, the knife edge. It's about 100 feet of just exposure, 1,000 feet if you, if you fall unroped. So you, you, you heard of um, Rock City yes. in Tennessee? Uh-huh. Okay. So when I was eight, nine, ten years old, I yeah. don't know, um, my family took a trip to go see Rock City. Go see Rock City, right. Uh, and my parents would listen to this, and they'll know exactly what I'm about to say. They have a swing-along bridge as part of the exhibit okay. where you walk from one side of wherever the hell it's at to the other. <laughs> I was scared shitless. Really? We're on a bridge and it's not bolted as like this. Like you really can't fall. But I'm looking down and I forever I've, I've had a I'm afraid of heights. Yeah. I mean it's just it's just a real thing. I mean, I don't know if it's because of that moment, but like what you're just explaining describing to me, I'm terrified. No, you would so so me asking you if you had any interest in going doing that is off the table. Off the table. I would love to say that I would like to do some of that, and I think that I would. Yeah, I think but, you would like but, that. But things that are Exposed at high uh, altitudes. Yeah, and I'm I can look down, not so much. Not yeah, I mean I think I think that's natural. I, I mean I'm not gonna lie and say like it doesn't scare me. I mean you're looking and you're like if this uh, piece of metal that's you know the width of your pinky finger and it's stuck in a rock crack. Uh, you know, falls. You give me anxiety, dude. You know, I mean, I'm done. Or these bolts that are, you know, in this rock, you know, fail. But, like, you just have to trust. I mean, that's part of it. And if it's your time to go, it's your time to go. Have you been on a uh, Royal Caribbean cruise? What's that? Have you been on a Royal Caribbean cruise? No, I've only done Carnival. Okay, so Royal Caribbean, they have these rock climbing walls. Uh And they're for kids. And they're probably (laughs) 50 feet high, maybe 100. I don't know. So we were on a cruise last year, and my whole family gets up there, and I'm the last one to go. I made it 10 feet up. I'm like, I can't. Like, this is this isn't for me, guys. Serious? Yes. Like, my daughter's at the top. She's my son's up there. I'm like, not for me. No way. Yeah, I just don't like that stuff, man. Oh man, yeah. I don't like it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, I, I'm certainly you know I remember like bungee jumping as a kid, and like remember looking over and being petrified and like probably holding the thing the whole time. My sister did it after me and she's, you know, jumping off backward with her hands in the air. Um, So yeah, I mean, I don't, it's not something I like, but I just, I don't know, this sense of accomplishment and just working, you know, and and really kind of challenging yourself. Good stuff, man. Enjoyable. Good stuff. All right. Last thing before we go. Sure. You're wearing a Braves shirt. Yep. We talked about Georgia. Braves versus dogs. Where's your allegiance if you had to choose one? Oh, dogs. Dogs. Yeah. And I mean, I, I, and I have been a Braves fan longer than a dogs fan. It's funny. My parents uh, didn't go to Georgia. Uh, They didn't go to college actually, but um you know, I went to Georgia, and as a fellow dog, you you can appreciate this. I mean, you get there, and, and you just buy it, you know, and it's something you um, just gets in your blood. And so while I grew up a Braves fan back in the 90s, and remember Sid Slid, and remember going to downtown Atlanta in 1991 after they lost, and watching the ticker tape parade, I mean, I've been a Braves fan for a very long time, um, and I really didn't become a Georgia fan until I went to college there. But you know, there's just so many good memories of meeting my wife and, you know, being there with my best friend who's continues to be, you know, the best man of my wedding is, is still my best friend that I, you know, live with all throughout. So agree with you hundred percent. How would you describe or compare to the joy after the Braves World Series versus dogs winning the world winning that championship? <sighs> That's tough. Yeah. I mean, I think again, dogs for sure, just because, you know, they had I'm I'm will be forty two in April, so I'd never seen um you know, the dogs win a national championship in my lifetime. And I think, you know, when you go to college there and, you know, it's part of, you know, your story, right? I mean, the Braves, as much as I love them, um, they're not, they're not my story in the sense that, you know, I didn't go to that call, you know, I didn't play for the Braves. Right. I didn't, you know, so. I just feel so lucky that we had that, you know. What a year. That year. That year the, was incredible. Yeah, you know, we call ourselves the double champs. Absolutely. You know, I still do. I'm like, I'm a double champ, man. And I, <laughs> I, and, I was, and I was laughing because, you know, Michigan obviously won this year. And there right. was a moment where the Lions were making a run in the Super Bowl. I'm like, I, know. I can't be having these Detroit people claiming double champs. I'm the double That's champ. That's true. They ain't double champs. That's right. We are the double champs I in know. Atlanta. No, Athens. I know. You're right. Well, we remember a few years ago we had, you know, Atlanta United won in 2018. We were so close with the Falcons. 
uh, and the you know twenty what was it twenty eight to three that year. So I mean, it, had we had that, and then the Hawks, you know, they're fun to watch again. Last night they beat the Lakers. That was incredible. Mm-hmm. Dejounte Murray, what was that last week or the week before? His buzzer beaters. I was there. It was awesome. Were you? Yeah. I mean, great. it's just it's a fun time to be in Atlanta for you know having suffered through Atlanta sports for so long, it is a fun time to be a fan of Absolutely. Atlanta sports Absolutely. and Georgia sports. Well, my man, I enjoy this very, very much. Likewise. Uh, thank you for coming down. And I'm glad that we, you know, had it delayed until now because the trial would have, would have, wouldn't have been part of it. That's and, right. And I'm super, super interested to hear about it. And I'm, I'm proud of you guys. Thank I'm excited you. excited for y'all. And the appeal is going to go well for you. And it's all good stuff. I feel so. good about it. And it's been such an honor to be here with you. It's amazing how quickly uh, the time goes. And, and I appreciate the opportunity and the persistence in getting me in here. <laughs> yeah, man. All right. Well, tell people where they can find you. Website, email address. Uh, they want to be your next buddy going out to mm-hmm. you know, Colorado. How they can find you. Absolutely. Well, we're all over the social media. Um, but our uh, website is uh, glassrobeson.com. You can email me at jar at glassrobeson.com or call me direct at 404-751-4714. We handle all aspects of personal injury on behalf of the injured and their families. We love uh, love to represent folks who are good people. Uh, we do a good job. We don't do volume and uh, we're pretty good lawyers. So love to work with anybody who needs our help. Would agree with everything you just said. Thank so, you. Thank you all for listening. I know you enjoyed listening to James like I enjoyed talking to him. And uh, scroll back a couple months. Find some other people you want to listen to. Make a whole day out of it. You just listen to a whole bunch of these episodes. Oh, I'm excited to start listening to some of these, particularly uh, Alvaro. He was in here you know, in our office uh, yesterday. So I'm, I'm going to see what he has to say and how I can be an even better lawyer. We had fun with him. And he, has, he always has good stuff to share. That's so, awesome, man. On. I look forward to listening to it. All right, y'all. Thank y'all for listening. Uh, and as always, until next time, keep chopping. <laughs>